and welcome to the next in our series of podcasts on Trade Matters. Today we're focusing on the future of trade regulation, standards and what it could all look like once the UK leaves the EU. I'm delighted to be joined today by Michael Moore, our Senior Advisor on Brexit, Joe Pisani, our UK Farmer and Life Sciences Consulting Leader, and Anastasia Belikova, Head of Trade at British Chamber of Commerce. Thanks all for being here. I'm looking forward to a really interesting conversation uh, about the future of trade regulation. Michael, start us off. Um, tell us a bit about the nuts and bolts of why the regulations will change as a result of exit. We are in the process of completely re-engineering the way that we trade with our biggest partners uh, in the world, in Europe, and other countries around the globe. So this is a big, big moment. And a lot of UK law has its origins in EU-wide agreement, which we've been part of. We've got 16 months to go until we formally leave uh, the European Union and the objective, understandably, is to make this as seamless as possible. But there's a small task of converting approximately 12,000 different legal instruments uh, from their European law basis into uh, UK law. So copying and pasting that is quite a big challenge. And what we're going to see is a range of risks attached to the process as Parliament considers all of this. Can we do it all in time is one obvious uh, challenge. Technically, will we do it accurately, notwithstanding the brilliance of the Parliamentary Council and others? And of course, it will be very hard, not least with the political backdrop we have, to ensure that the policy is, is really is the same the day after Brexit as the day before, because Parliament will want to have its say. So there's a lot to get right. Um, what are the sort of best and worst case scenarios as how that could all pan out? One of the big challenges, aside from getting all of that right, is the fact that uh, we don't yet know what is the landing zone, the trade arrangements that the United Kingdom is going to seek from its European partners. And that's key to driving what happens, not just with Europe, but with our relations elsewhere in the world. If you look at the best and worst case scenarios in that context, the best scenario clearly is that we get a full deal. We get the exit deal sorted, we get transition to the new arrangements, and by the time we leave, we've got the kind of heads of terms. We know what that trading relationship is designed to be like. The worst case scenario is we don't get a deal. And that is really quite problematic uh, if, if we consider that uh, carefully. In a best case scenario, we would hope that trade would see harmonisation, a continuation of what we've enjoyed by another name or close to it. I expect there will be change even there. That might be mutual recognition of standards and, and, and the like. In the worst case scenario, uh, we're going to see divergence and a difference between what we, uh, how we regulate business at home. And that will affect the trade relationship because that is going to go to the heart of whether or not our goods pass seamlessly into the rest of the European Union and with our partners elsewhere. Joe, I, I guess this is going to be particularly an issue in some of the highly regulated industries such as pharma and life sciences. What are your clients doing at the moment to assess all this and get their, get their head around these Yes, issues? well, I mean, pharmaceuticals is an absolutely critical and significant contributor to the UK economy. And in fact, an industry for which a harmonised regulatory system across the European Union has been a tremendous benefit, both to the industry and to patients. So having a single a route to approving a product, making sure it's safe and efficacious and can quickly get to market has been significant in driving health outcomes. 
So the concern is, were we to leave that regulatory framework and you have one system for the EU27, the UK would probably be de deprioritized in terms of launch priorities for pharmaceutical products, which would mean we would actually delay getting those new products into our patients' hands. That's a big issue. And what are the most likely scenarios companies are looking at at the moment? Well, within that, and again, this is the discussions also happening at the government side, is how do we want to participate in an ongoing European Union pharmaceutical regulatory framework? Um, and I think the most pragmatic solution is to have an ongoing regulatory cooperation agreement, where, whereby we recognise most of the regulatory approvals that come from the European Union um, and under a sort of mutual recognition type framework. At the same time, we've got the ability to liberate other parts of our regulatory framework, such as um, stem cell testing, etc., which could actually really help revitalise the life sciences industry going forward. At its, the other alternative, of course, is working up the, the, the position of the UK having its own sovereign regulator, which would actually mean a lot of replication, duplication and delays in terms of getting those new products to market. So a lot of that's very specific to, to pharma. I mean, what would you draw out from what you know of pharma as lessons for other highly regulated sectors going into all this? Well, it's interesting. I suppose pharma does tend to be sort of ahead of the curve in terms of thinking, because let's not forget, some of the lead times for pharmaceutical products are quite long, 10 years plus to get a product to market. So they've been thinking long and hard about some of the, the topic areas. And in fact, we were engaged by the industry associations last summer to work through this. And lessons that we learned from that was we actually came up with strategies, which was the life sciences industry speaking with one voice. So that's pharmaceuticals, biotech, animal health, medical devices, diagnostics, all with a common view about what really the implications were for the industry. Also, another key thing was getting the media on side. And again, I think the media has been very strong about saying regulation in the case of pharmaceuticals is absolutely critical for all the reasons I described before. So getting the media on side has been absolutely important. So, Anastasia, I guess a lot of these regulations, when you get right down to it, a lot of them rest on product standards. Tell us a bit about how all that works. How is that all going to be changing? There is an interlink between product standards and regulation, uh, but standards are set voluntarily by industry, uh, by businesses at both an international and a European level. So what happens at a European level is that one single standard is agreed on any given issue, and this same standard is used uh, within 34 countries, so both EU and EFTA countries. Sometimes these standards respond to what is asked for in regulation, about 25% of European standards do, but the rest are just uh, set by the initiative of business. So what this does for companies is that it facilitates market access and it also lowers production costs because you don't have to cater to several different standards. Now, post-Brexit, uh, businesses, UK businesses, will need to continue to use these standards to gain access to European markets. Um, and currently, the UK has significant influence over how these standards are set. Um, and to continue doing so, uh, the UK needs to retain membership of these European standard-setting bodies. And as long as we continue playing an active role, even as regulations diverge, standards do not need to do so as well. And even currently, we have slightly different regulation from the EU on some areas, uh, such as on furniture fire safety, for example. And so keeping membership of these bodies is going to be important. Is that, uh, is that, is that a done deal, more or less? Or? Uh, there are some technicalities that need to be sorted out for that to happen. But given that these bodies are European bodies, not EU bodies, um, it should be feasible. Now, another aspect to note there is that there are these organizations called notified bodies. 
and that is what businesses, uh, that is who businesses need to turn to to get conformity assessment checks on their products. Um, now these are tied in with EU regulation, so it's important that there is a deal to make sure that they can continue doing checks for the EU market, even though we won't be under EU jurisdiction uh, after Brexit. Okay. Okay, so there's been a lot of talk about how all these changes could mean that there's a, a chance to be a lot more flexible in our own future trade deals. What's your take on all that? So on standards, there are two big players, the EU and the US. Um, if the UK were to uh, recognize standards from the US, for example, um, which is outside the European standard setting institutions, uh, you would no longer be able to apply this single European standard setting model and the UK would no longer be able to retain membership of these European standard setting bodies. So this would mean that UK business would still have to comply with European standards but would not have a say over how these are set. Um, for the US, this would not actually necessarily give us reciprocal market access. Uh, because they have a very different system, they have about 800 standard setting bodies. Um, so there is an important question here um, that Michael has raised earlier. The UK needs to decide uh, what its landing zone is and where it wants to head in terms of the markets and the market access that it wishes to prioritise. So there's this pretty complicated position I think we're talking through. There's an enormous amount of detail here. What can companies do today to uh, influence the outcome and make sure things are going in the right direction for them in this whole standards area? So companies need to uh, have an understanding of which areas might be impacted by Brexit. For example, if they are reliant on notified bodies currently, um, they should continue having a strong voice either via their trade body um, or directly via the British Standards Institution. Businesses can participate directly in the standards setting in the technical um, decisions on standards that uh, the BSI facilitates and also engage with your local Chamber of Commerce. And Joe, uh, beyond the risks with standards and regulation, what other areas do you think businesses ought to be thinking about at the moment as they start planning for the future beyond Brexit? Yes, I think particularly for the pharma industry, it's really understanding the implications on the whole supply chain. I mean, if we take the worst case scenarios, as, as Michael's alluded to, and we end up with WTO rules, you can't actually put tariffs on finished good drugs products according to WTO most favoured nation status. But you can on partly finished products, you can on medical devices. So we find with many of our clients, they need to have a rigorous view through all of their industry codes to understand the implications that tariffs might have. Another key thing for any sort of high value product um, industry is, is the implications of customs union because again the last thing you want is highly valued stock sitting on a dockside waiting for, for customs approval. You need to fully understand the implications on working capital. People is another issue, again free movement of people and also stabilising non-UK EU nationals and we're finding many of our clients almost taking the no regret decisions just now about well let's help our employees apply for permanent residency and help their dependents apply for permanent residency through the current process. Um, and then finally, it's sort of really um, having a constructive dialogue with government. Um, certainly with our work within pharma, we found that government is receptive to understanding the implications, the issues and in indeed solutions that the industry might want to offer them. And Michael, some final thoughts from you. Well, I think we've had a rich set of examples here, all of which point at the fact that we've got a lot to do in the next 16 months. We, of course, would love to have certainty from government about what the landing zone looks like, 
what the details of the new regulatory environment here in the UK uh, will be. But we've treated the European Union as a home market for the last 40 years. It's about to become a trading market and trading rules will apply. So doing nothing is not really an option for businesses, we would suggest. You've got to map the business against the best case and the worst case scenarios, understand, as Joe was saying, how that might impact critical things like the supply chain and people. And then once that's done, you know what you need to prepare in terms of mitigation. But the key message is we need to keep thinking and keep engaging and planning from now on. Well, thank you all for those insights and such an interesting conversation. Plenty of food for thought. Um, thank you all for listening. Join us again soon for the next in our series on Trade Matters. Don't forget you can access all our podcasts, blogs and events at pwc.co.uk slash trade matters.